Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss how early years and support of families is shaping up to be one of the hot political topics of 2023 is my colleague, Caitlin Doherty. We're also joined by the former Cabinet Minister and Government Advisor on Early Years, Andrea Ledson, and Matthew McPherson, co-chair of the Next Gen Tories, a new campaign group created to press the Conservative Party to focus on the policy priorities of the under-45s, namely housing, childcare and the cost of living. We'll start off with you, Andrea. Obviously, you've been an advisor to the government on earlier strategies since 2020. Just talk us through the Family Hubs Network that was launched last year and why it's kind of so important to the government's policy in this area. Well, I think that the Best Start for Life is actually quite life-changing in England. And the Family Hubs is just a part of that. So as things stand, we are rolling out Family Hubs across 75 upper tier local authority areas in England, plus a further 12 that the Department for Education were rolling out previously to that. So that's just over one in two local authority areas in England will have family hubs. But the point about them is that they will focus on outcomes for babies and children. And the area I'm most interested in, the thing that I'm chairing on behalf of the government, is the best start for life. So the idea is that in family hubs, you will be invited there if you're expecting a baby, you'll be able to go there and get antenatal checks to meet your health visitor, to have um, television programs helped by a health visitor regarding um, giving birth, sleeping, crying, weaning, your relationship with your partner. Your other half will be welcome there too. You can have a nice cup of coffee. You can get advice on stopping smoking, on more serious issues like prospective drug and alcohol problems or domestic violence problems. So the idea of the family hubs is they will be a one-stop shop for everybody who is expecting or has a young baby with a real focus on giving every baby the best start for life. And the real beauty of them is they will also be available virtually. So in COVID lockdown, people desperately wanted to return to -to face-to-face services, but they also really valued the convenience of virtual contact with the health visitor if they had a quick question or whatever. And so actually combining those things is just going to make such a difference for so many families. And so do you think, in a sense, that's it's bringing together services that perhaps already exist, but perhaps lots of new parents don't really know about or don't have uh, understand how they access them and that sort of stuff? And is it sort of saying that, look, here is something that we're offering to kind of all parents that's right there and being able to show that you're kind of really taking early years really seriously, I suppose? Exactly. So you're right, a lot of the services, so the the critical universal services that every family needs are, of course, midwifery and health visiting. But also, many, many families need um, infant feeding support, particularly breastfeeding support, and they also need mental health support. And those are a real postcode lottery at the moment across England. Uh, They also need, where it's um, needed for them and their baby, safeguarding, and also disability support. So those are the critical services, patchily available now in England, but going forward, 
they'll be universally available and available in every family hub. And you're exactly right that what we discovered in the um, in the research phase is that families said, well, I kind of knew that I needed a midwife or a health visitor, but I didn't really know what's the phone number, where do I go and see them and so on. So a big part of this is making sure every single expectant person receives information on where they can access their Start for Life services, what they are, what the phone number is, what the address is to go there, what the virtual login is, etc., so that everybody knows where to go to seek help. Hmm. Well, we'll come back to a lot of this stuff kind of later, but Caitlin, I just wanted to chat with you about kind of how we got to this point, how it became kind of a, a big issue. It's obviously been bubbling on in the background. We've seen lots of protests. The campaign group Pregnant Then Screwed have been pushing for a lot of this kind of help for on, on childcare and that sort of stuff. And we saw um, Rishi Sunak looking to perhaps ditch some of the potential childcare reforms that Liz Truss would have brought in had she stayed on as, as Prime Minister. So just kind of talk us through some of those differences or, or what we think might be happening around that. Yeah, over the last few months, like you said, this has been an issue that's been bubbling under for a while. But a lot of policy issues in relation to the economy at the moment keep back coming back round to childcare. The government are talking about productivity and then people are saying, well, if you help people with childcare and early years support, then we can get more people back into the workplace, etc, etc. So it's sort of become the new issue that everything is starting to move its focus around. And I imagine that we will keep doing so as we as we go through this year. You're right. We saw a report just after Christmas that Sunak um was pushing back or possibly ditching, you know, um, some of these uh, childcare reform policies that we'd spoken about before. Um, we've we've been looking at um, 30 hours of childcare could be extended to children between the ages of two and four, whereas currently only parents who are on benefits are able to claim free childcare for yeah. children who are two-year-olds. For most people, it, it comes in at the age of three. The Department for Education have said that they've spent more than £20 billion over the last five years to support families with the cost of childcare and the number of places available in England has remained stable since 2015. However, if you speak to anybody that is um, going through the childcare system or going through these early years processes at the moment, the same issues keep coming up. It's too expensive, it's difficult to get hold of and as a result, it is impacting my work life. You know, I mean, people are either taking fewer hours or they're having to alter their job or they're having to alter... Um, where they work so this really does feel like it's a topic that's really coming into focus at the moment and whether it will be the new sort of dividing line we'll have to see but there were a number of conservative MPs who were really quite unhappy when we saw that report in the Telegraph just after Christmas about these reforms potentially being pushed back so it certainly feels like there is um, some resistance to um, should Rishi Sunak ditch it entirely, he would face some resistance from his own backbenches. Yeah, and Matthew, obviously, childcare is one of the one of the big things that your group, which launched at the end of last year, is looking at. One of the the issues that uh, one of the policies that Liz Truss perhaps would have brought in would be to increase the ratios to allow more people to to access nurseries with with the same amount of staff. Your group um, is looking at some perhaps some more radical ideas around that, and we'll talk about the kind of the politics around that a bit later. But but what what are kind of the things that you would like to see come in? to improve access to childcare in that sense. Yeah, and I think this is a really important issue. And, you know, um, what Liz Truss proposed was a step forward, but actually, you know, adjusting the childcare ratio, the, the ratios for staffing, I just, it doesn't go far enough. If you actually look, you know, across a par parliament, you've got people like Siobhan Bailey who are doing some really interesting thinking in this space. So actually, I think we should be, you know, we have currently very prescriptive 30 and 15 hour childcare entitlements. I think we could be much more 
radical and that ha look at a, a voucher system, you know, allow ch parents to use childcare all year round. We can be flexible on how that's used. You know, it shouldn't just be formal nursery-based care. We know grandparents, for example, play a big role in, in childcare, particularly in the school holidays. Could we look at train tickets, for example, to, to visit grandparents or relatives? Um, also, I, I think, you know, at the moment, the system kicks in at the age of two for, you know, there is no childcare provision below two. I think the vast majority of parents need to return to work before the age of two. So I think, you, you know, I would rather Rishi Sunak took the time, uh, took, you know, the opportunity to think, you know, about a long-term system of reform rather than just a sticking plaster and actually come forward with, with proposals for the future. Mm. And Andrew, obviously your, focus, your work has been focused on the kind of the earlier year stuff rather than necessarily ch childcare. Do, do you think that, you know, it, it does need to focus right from that sort of minute one and, and uh, rather than perhaps, you know, looking at when things start at two and that sort of stuff. And it's that zero to two phase and the help that the support that can be done, not just in terms of childcare, but the other support is really important to show, not just for, for, for health reasons, but also that, that you know, the, the government is there and is, and is supporting people from the, from the first moment that they, they they're going to start a family yeah uh, the fact is that when you have your first child it is absolutely a revolution in your life nothing is ever the same again and i completely agree with what matthew just said about we need to make the free childcare flexible for the needs of parents um it's crazy that you can't get any um free entitlement unless you're extremely you're in extreme deprivation until your child is two so for many young families where both partners if there are two partners are working invariably they're both back at work within six months and that's when childcare is at its most expensive and you also feel that much more protective towards your baby you don't want to put them into a, a kind of an institutional childcare setting. So I think we need to be looking exactly as Matthew says, much more about informal childcare, um, childminders, where it's a family home setting, as well as really good quality childcare settings with flexibility for parents and carers to decide exactly when they want to use that free entitlement. Mm. It's kind of a wider political issue as well, isn't it? You know, in terms of, you know, people say that if you if you help out on this kind of stuff, you can close the gender pay gap. You know, you can create more jobs. It does feel as though, Caitlin, that it's going to be a real political dividing line because you know, Labour say they're going to rebuild a new kind of childcare system and 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 ease the pressure on parents from the end of parental leave right to the end of of, of primary school. Mm. I mean, yeah, we're in a situation at the moment, certainly. You know the number of fathers taking time off when a baby has bought when a baby is born has increased in the last few years thanks to shared parental leave. You know people tend to be splitting that time, um, but you know we do have that issue of a gender pay gap with people um, in their thirties and forties where in, uh, you know. I think it's fair to say for the moment, certainly more women take that time off than than men do. So it, there is more to it apart from you know, just helping people get their children into nursery. We've spoken about how a lot of the talk at the moment is around productivity and getting the economy moving again um, after this slump. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the more people are helped out with this, you know, the more people will be able to get back into the economy and contributing and, you know, splitting that time fairly. Yeah, Kate, Kate, Caitlin's exactly right on that. I mean, this isn't just about the very earliest bits of childcare, but it's also then about how do you get women who have taken some time off to be with their baby, quite rightly, most women would wish to do that, even when there's shared parental leave. But then it's when you do want to attract them back into the workplace, what has the employer done to help them to stay sort of motivated? And some employers will say, well, look, we'll give you 
free childcare a day a month so that you can come in and keep in contact with your colleagues, stay up to speed with what the job entails. But of course, in a lot of places, they don't bother with that. So for many people, they just never properly get back into the workplace. So, so much talent goes by the wayside. So it seems to me that flexible working, but also making sure that businesses who want to keep all of that largely female talent put in place arrangements so that they can do that. Mm. Yeah, Andrew, when you and I spoke before, we, we talked about kind of the, the 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 wider political issue of it and whether the Tories have got a problem with perhaps younger voters and young female voters. I looked up in, in 2019, uh, amongst the 18 to 24-year-olds, women voted 65% Labour, 15% Tories, whereas men it was 46 and, and 28. Matthew, your group obviously is looking at kind of helping to get Tories to more people to vote Tory who are younger. You know, how important do you think this is to that? And what do you think the, the, the government needs to do to, to, to shift that dial, really? Childcare is a really, really important point. And our, part of our, our group is to say there's three key areas, so the cost of living, housing and childcare. You know, the cost of childcare at the moment is about, on average, about £13,000 per child. That is astronomical. That's the equivalent of somebody sending their child to, to private school. Um, I think it will be a dividing line at the next election. Um, and, and and fundamentally, I I think government does need to come forward with some some interesting proposals on this to appeal to the under forty fives to to people who are uh, you know who are younger who previously you know people would the Conservative Party has never done particularly well with younger voters but as people went into their 30s and 40s they started voting Conservative and there's that famous quote from Winston Churchill um, but. We, we see, you know, the dividing line, the average age uh, of voting conservative is is going up. And there are three million uh, younger voters, people who are under 35, who would consider voting conservative, who are currently not doing so. And there's a massive potential there for the party to unlock those votes, um, which will be crucial to winning elections, both the next election and elections in the future. Mm. Uh, Andrew, do you think that the things like the family hubs are definitely something that the conservatives can, you know, put on their pledge cards in 2024 and say, this is what we're offering younger voters? Well, 18 to 24 tend, not absolutely, but tend not to be the new parents. It tends to be in the sort of later 20s and early 30s. So um, 18 to 24 is much more about values. And there I find it quite interesting because when I go and talk to students at university or indeed kids in sixth forms, they actually do have the conservative values of kind of self-help and self-independence and not believing the world owes them a living and wanting to sort of make their own way. And yet somehow that doesn't translate into voting conservative. And as Matthew says, that has long, long been a problem. But nevertheless, it's also true to say that as people do um, you know, form relationships um, and start to think about having a family, that actually then the issues that really... Um, focus the mind is things like childcare and housing. Can you buy your own home? Can you make a, a secure place for your family? And that's where conservatives really do need to focus. But I think there's another issue here, which is um, the whole climate change agenda. And I do, again, think conservative governments successively have done so well in decarbonisation and tackling climate change. And I think that that is an area that many, many young people, in fact, whenever I go to schools, it's usually the number one topic that's raised. I think that matters a lot for young people. So I think we should be trumpeting more what we're doing there. And I do think that has broad appeal to younger people in particular. 
Yeah, and I suppose there's, there's kind of the, the green jobs agenda as well is, is linked to that. Do you think that perhaps the, the government needs to do more to not just, just to actually tell everyone this is what they're doing and, and be a bit more brazen about the fact that it's a key issue, a key plank of a, of a conservative administration? Definitely. You know, there's so many things. You know, we get on with governing and we govern generally highly competently with a proper focus. I mean, we've got lowest unemployment that I think we've had since the 1970s. Even after the pandemic, etc., etc., unemployment is still very low. But what we don't always do is to sort of trumpet the successes. And we also don't talk enough about aspiration. And, you know, in my view, there is a huge opportunity for the UK to lead the world in tackling global climate change. And that means building millions of green jobs right across the UK. And we should talk about that ambition and make it a reality. So I think sometimes we undersell ourselves, particularly where young people are concerned. But coming back to the issue of childcare and uh, and early years, you know, there's no doubt that when you do have your first baby, that is the overwhelming focus is, is you know, my baby won't sleep, my, you know, how, how do I get them to latch on? Um, you know, I don't, I've got mental health issues or my partner is, uh, you know, behaving very strangely, I'm worried about them. Um, those are the things that really impact people in that critical early period. And then it goes on to become an issue of childcare, affordability of childcare. And then it goes on to, is my employer flexible? Are they going to let me work? hybrid work or work part-time whilst I raise my family. So we've, we've just got to get behind some of those issues and start really trying to tackle them. Yeah, as someone who's got a nine-month-old baby at home, I can definitely attest uh, to a lot of what you've just said there, Andrea. Uh, uh, Caitlin? There was an interesting term you used there, uh, Andrea, when you were talking about green jobs, and that was the aspiration to um, create green jobs and to get this sort of change underway. It's interesting because when I spoke to your co-founder, James Matthew, that was one thing he mentioned. He said that, you know, conservatives need to appeal to the idea of aspiration and the idea of wanting to change things and make things better talking more generally about what the Conservative Party uh, need to do or might want to do heading into the next election. Where do you think that word comes in, whether it be to do with green jobs or whether it be to do with childcare or the cost of living? Aspiration is really, really important. And it's aspiration around, for example, housing, aspiration around, you know, building a good life for for you and your family. And I think it's worth saying on the green jobs point that Andrea did fantastic work when she was business secretary in that area uh, in, in particular. Um when we go into the next election, my view is that the Conservative Party needs to have a really clear message for young people, for the, the under 45s, about how uh, we are delivering for them. And as, as Andrea says, sometimes we're not particularly good as a party at actually trumpeting that and, and, and saying, you know, uh, what the, particularly in those, in those areas and appealing to, to groups, not just appealing to our base, but also, you know, to be to to more broadly. If you look now at, at the, uh, you know, we won a huge majority at the last general election, but there are seats now, for example, to take one example, Battersea, it's my, my constituency, um, which the Conservative Party held with an 8,000 majority in 2015. It is now a rock solid Labour seat. And that is a real issue in terms of going forward. So a, a, a message that appears appeals to, to, the, to the whole country. There is a huge potential for the party there to unlock uh, new votes. Is, and, and that is an aspirational message I think is really important. Mm. You know, not to sort of bring the, the tone down with, with two, two Tories on the podcast, but obviously, you know, the party's been in, in government for nearly 13 years now. And, and you know, the... Uh, 
The UK has some of the highest childcare costs in the world, according to the OECD. Parents spend 26% of their joint income on childcare costs, compared with 9% in other economic developed countries. You know, there are lots of other policies being put forward. You know, a universal childcare guarantee that the IPPR said, you know, that would boost the economy by an extra £13 billion a year. Do you think, that, that, Matthew, that the government has to be a bit bolder in terms of this kind of stuff and, 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 and actually, you know, get their hands dirty and, and really kind of create some, some bolder thinking on this stuff? Absolutely, 100%. Um, We do need to be bold, and that's why I would rather that the Prime Minister took time to think about some bold proposals on childcare, the the ones that I set out previously, uh, you know, that I think are right, being much more flexible, being much more... uh, you, you know, ad- adaptable to what parent, parents need. Um, you know, there's some really, really interesting ideas coming up um, on the Conservative backbenches um, that I, I would like to see taken forward, particularly in the, in the area of, of, of childcare. Um, so rather than rushing through proposals and, you know, the, the ones that Liz Truss put forward in the summer, taking the time, obviously, you know, Prime Minister's been there for three months, it's all been about stability, absolutely rightly. And I think now we, you know, and, and you saw that in his speech, uh, last week, that the government needs to start thinking about you know what the future is and what you know how how it's going to change the country for the better. Mm. Andrea, w- within Parliament, obviously the the work that, that that goes on. I wondered what whether you thought there was any space for perhaps some cross party work on this. There's lots of people in all parties that are focused on early years, and it, although it, like I've talked about it being a political dividing line, it doesn't have to necessarily be a big political issue because it's a, it's a thing that affects people you know everyone across the country. Do you think there's kind of space for some cross party work on this? Perhaps take some of the the heat out of it and, and look at those kind of different views from, from other parties as well? Definitely. In fact, in the research phase of the um, Best Start for Life work, which uh, ran from July 2020 to March 21 when we launched the vision, um, I did actually have a cross-party, cross-house advisory group of MPs and peers, all of whom are totally committed to the Best Start for Life for Every Baby. And so, uh, you know, people like Frank Field and Sharon Hodgson, um, people who've been really long committed to this. Uh, So, yeah, I totally agree. In terms of childcare, I think there will be different nuances. I I understand Labour is sort of looking at pre-universal childcare, but they're not necessarily looking at quality and ratios and so on. And the reality is that you can either look at childcare as an opportunity to get women back into the workplace, which is an entirely honourable approach, but you also have to look at giving every baby the best start for life and simply kind of institutionalising babies in in places that are hard pushed, hard pressed with, um, you know, lower qualified um, nursery nurses who are perhaps less motivated, etc, or overburdened is definitely not the answer. So actually, it does require a double focus. And in fact, before Tessa Gerald sadly died, she and I had a good conversation about that when she set up Sure Starts 25 years ago. It was all about better outcomes for babies. But in the years that followed, it became much more about getting women back into work. And in a way, that's why I think Sure Starts lost their way. And so families with their very specific focus on the outcomes for babies and children will actually be, if you like, a second generation. But coming back to your original question, 
definitely there is and I hope can, will continue to be cross-party support for this. Mm. Interesting. We'll, we'll just quickly move on to some other stories um, from the moment. Actually, on, on a similar note, there's a, there's a story on the front cover of the Times today saying the Treasury is discussing giving people tax breaks to go back to work, trying to get some of the economically inactive people, perhaps saying that some over 50s will be exempt from paying income tax if they rejoin the workforce. What, what did you kind of make of that, Matthew? Do you think it was kind of, it feels a bit of kind of intergenerational war, uh, you know, warfare there. And there's people saying that perhaps, you know, that money should be put into childcare rather than in early years, rather than be putting into helping over 50s back into work. Government's obviously doing a lot of thinking at the moment around how to get some of those 9 million economically inactive back to work. That obviously needs to be an approach, but I would like an approach for all you know groups. But I would like to see the focus primarily on 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 those at the lower end rather than those who are, are, are uh, say retired who've retired early. Um, I think it would be it would make sense to look at the lower end first. Um, so, you know, I don't think that should be the priority at the moment. Mm. Andrew, I just wanted to ask you, um, when I spoke to you last month, I was talking about, you know, there was amongst some MPs saying they were going to step aside and not run the next election. You were very much, you know, in favour of sticking around and, and seeing through all of your early year stuff, seeing all the family hubs come to fruition. Um, Ken Clark, former cabinet minister, said that perhaps the Conservatives need a rest and Labour should have a turn at government. When I had uh, Robert Buckland on the podcast last month, he said that people are mad to think that and you eat dirt in opposition. I just wondered what you kind of made of, of those, you know, do, do the Tories need a period in opposition? Definitely not. I mean, that, that is the thing, you know, it frightens the life out of me, to be honest. I know that uh, Keir Starmer does a very good impression of someone who's very boring. Um, but that don't, don't read into that, the fact that he might be halfway competent. And certainly on the Labour benches, you know, there are some really unreconstructed communists there who think that the state should own the means of of of, um, of growth and that they should then allocate out according to the just desserts and I mean I I have never been tempted to submit our economy to another Labour government you know I grew up my parents had a furniture shop and at the time the self-employed were paying 98% super tax on their final that was their marginal final tax rate and you know I I do not believe that Labour has the answers at all. Um, you know, they, they, they fail to accept that actually, in the end, it is free, free market economics have won the argument again and again and again. And it's only when people get tired of a government that they toy with trying something different. And I think one term of Labour and we would absolutely live to regret it. Okay, so we can definitely put you in the no column then on, on the uh, on the I think I, can, I think I can absolutely confidently say I'd be a no thanks to a, <laughs> a, a period of rest. But thanks okay. for asking. Um, yeah, well, and, and Caitlin, just finally, obviously, the, the other big story of the week is, is strikes. Uh, as we as we talk now on Thursday afternoon, there's been more talks between the government and, and various unions. They don't seem to have been going particularly well. Um, can you just talk us through sort of where we are now and, and, and kind of where we are going on to the next couple of weeks, do you think? Yeah, so this week, um, the ministers and officials have been engaged in talks with unions again for the first time since Christmas. Obviously, we've been having strikes for a number of weeks now, not quite rolling but you know we've got used to this idea of you know one week the nurses might be on strike and then the next week it's the trains etc etc the next big strikes due next week are the nurses nurses are due to go out for two days uh, next week as we speak and yeah it seems like uh, health secretary steve barclay and transport secretary
Secretary Mark Harper have been re-engaging with the unions and ultimately it does seem to still be coming down to this issue of pay. There are other workforce issues, you know, relating to on the trains. We're talk- um, there's been a lot of talk about um, staff being reduced and in the NHS there's been some talk of efficiencies and things like that. But ultimately with inflation and the cost of living going up, the main thing that seems to be settling these strikes at the moment is the pay deals. And, you know, whether we might come to some form of compromise in the next few weeks, it remains to be seen. I think having um, done a lot of reporting on the strikes this week, I'd say that things seem more, um, they seem friendlier this week than they did before Christmas. It's less two sides butting heads and more two sides with different views are at least now sitting in a room together, which yeah. which does feel like quite an improvement. Um, whether we'll see the next round of strikes called off still remains to be seen, um, but it does certainly feel like there are some constructive conversations going on in um, certain areas, but obviously it remains to be seen whether money can be released for those certain pay rises, because obviously money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. And one of the government's big concerns at the moment is obviously cost of living, keeping public spending down and tightening those purse strings. Mm. So just Andrew, before before we, before we finish, do you think that are you, are you more positive that we're going to see an end to these or do you think that we're going to be talking about this next week and in the coming weeks to come without a deal being struck? I mean, the one thing I would be doing in, in the shoes of any Secretary of State trying to deal with a, a threatening strike scenario is to engage with them. I mean, in my view, my, my approach would be to get them in the room, not let them go until we've struck a deal. Um, but having said that, I think there is clearly an agenda here. It's not for nothing that we get seeing these sort of rolling strikes, one thing after another. Um, and it is, you know, I, I think it's extremely regrettable. I think the um, the um, emergency uh, work legislation is going to have to be the result, as many other countries have, because the rights of people to receive emergency care, if you've just had a heart attack, you need an ambulance, you need somebody to be available to help you. And it is not right that the rights of people to withdraw their labour should supersede the rights of people to receive public services. So I think it's a great, great regret that we're in this position. I would personally be going for some sort of potential additional payment for those who are in real hardship over this winter. And I don't count the majority of uh, train drivers in that category compared to the sort of median salary across the, the country. Uh, but certainly for nurses, I think some sort of cost of living winter payment would make sense. But at the same time, as Caitlin says, we cannot simply give vast pay rises to people that then feed into inflation because inflation is the real killer for any economy that makes us all poorer. I think I agree with Andrea um, broadly. I think the government's come to this position out of necessity. Um, particularly on things like the ambulance strike, we haven't seen any coordination, which is is different to how the nurses went on strike. We saw no coordination this week with the ambulance strikes in terms of minimum service level agreements. Um, I think, you know, most people would want all category one and two calls. So category two calls are things like suspected strokes or chest pains. They would want to see their family members uh, get a quick and speedy response from an ambulance to to a call. Um, So I think, unfortunately, the government has come out... uh, come to this out of a necessity and and it's it's not a position i think any of us would want to end up in um i i think you know going forward this is a hopefully something which won't have to be used on a on a a regular basis but these are similar laws to what we they have in countries like spain and france um and you know but i do agree with andrea that getting you know unions around the table having positive discussions um dialogue is better than silence so 
uh, that's going to be really important in terms of resolving this going forward. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicsome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my colleague, Caitlin Doherty, and our brilliant guests, Andrea Ledsom and Matthew McPherson. Our editor today was Laura Silver. Thanks again to you all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now... This has been The Rundown, and I've been Alan Tolhurst.